envelope. I'm doing the interview. Bye. Welcome from Alpha to Omega. I'd like to make the outrageous claim that has a little bit of truth. All of these things that's happening now with the computer, the digitalization of our society, of, of information, you could say in a way is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert at the beginning of the century. Not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the bank solvent, not to produce more goods and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to our leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. Round up the chorus so they all sing praises to your leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. And that's the historic task of intellectuals. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of my new podcast from Alpha to Omega. I'm Tom O'Brien. Today, I will be interviewing Professor Michael Paraman economist and economic historian. We discuss his upcoming book, Sex, Lies and Economics, which details the wild and zany lives of the early economists, including bringing people back from the dead, creating energy from excrement, and fighting jewels in basements with butcher's axes. We also discuss a wide range of other topics, from the origins of capitalism to the sorry state of American higher education and the end of American empire. First though, I would like to thank my good friend Paul OG for his very kind donation. Thanks very much Paul. Also I'd like to thank my other good friend Fiona C for her thoughts on the podcast so far. Fiona hopes I will give more time and exposure to my own ideas and thoughts in the upcoming episodes. To which I have but two words for you Fiona. Pandora's box. And now for the boring stuff. You can sign up to receive email notifications for new episodes of the show on the podcast website. There, you can help to cover the cost for the podcast by donating to the show. You can also join the From Alpha to Omega group on Facebook, which is slowly building up some steam. 14 people have already joined up after the first two shows, only 8 of which are my mother. So today's guest is Professor Michael Perlman, an economist and economic historian at the California State University, Chico. He is the writer of the award-winning economics blog, Unsettling Economics, and is the author of a large number of highly regarded economic books, including The Invention of Capitalism and Class Warfare in the Information Age. He is currently working on his latest opus, provisionally titled Sex, Lies and Economics. Before we begin today's interview, I need to give a little historical background. We initially focus on the life of William Petty, a polymath and economist, and all-round social climber, who was born in England in 1623 and died in London in 1687. He lived through the rise of Oliver Cromwell, an English military general and politician around the time of the Civil War, 
After the execution of King Charles I in 1649, Cromwell led a cruel and genocidal campaign in Ireland for two years, described in the following quote of Winston Churchill. By an uncompleted process of terror, by an iniquitous land settlement, by the virtual proscription of the Catholic religion, by the bloody deeds already described, he cut new gulfs between the nations and the creeds. Hell or Connacht were the terms he thrust upon the native inhabitants, and they for their part, across 300 years, have used as their keenest expression of hatred the curse of Cromwell on you. Upon all of us there still lies the curse of Cromwell. Cromwell became the Lord Protector of the English Commonwealth from 1653 until his death in 1658. After his death, Charles II, son of the beheaded Charles I, returned to the throne in May 1690 to wide public acclaim. In November of that year, the Royal Society was founded as a learned society for science and is possibly the oldest such society in existence. So, Professor Perlman, can you tell us about your new book and what it was that inspired you to write it? Oh, I don't know what inspired me to write it. I've always fascinated by the wild lives of these early economists. can't imagine that you could find many more characters than what there seems to be in this area. And they seem to be make much more sense than the economists we see today. One of the people that you focus on in, in the book is a man who had a great impact on the country of Ireland, which is William Petty. What attracted him to uh, Ireland? And can you give us a little bit of a, a background on the man? I'll tell you the first sentence of the book, and it'll give you an idea of his life. And that is, William Petty has the unique distinction of being the first economist in history ever to raise someone from the dead. Petty gets a position as a doctor, professor of anatomy, and one of his jobs is to dissect criminals to show the physiological cause of their criminality. And there's a woman named Anne Green who's hung for murder. And her crime is that she was either seduced or raped by the grandson of this aristocrat. The child comes out stillborn, a piece of almost blackened flesh, and she hides it. And for this, she's convicted of murder and hung. The hangman, a man named John Ketch, he botches the job and Petty sees some sort of life. He gets credit then for resurrecting her from the dead. How else could someone survive hanging? Now he's very famous. Because of this, Cromwell invites him to be the chief physician for the army. Here he is invading Ireland. The problem is the country doesn't have any money to invade Ireland. So the idea is that they'll do a survey and the survey will divvy up the land and they can give land to the investors and the soldiers to pay off the invasion. The survey's not going too well. Petty talks his way into doing the survey, promises to do it very quickly, He's not supposed to pick up land in the process. So he keeps half of his promises. He does it very quickly and he does it very efficiently. Efficiently enough that perhaps for 150 years, nobody ever does a survey as sophisticated as his. Because the survey, he has knowledge about the land and picks up a lot of his land on his own. And then soldiers who are in need of money, when they're granted land, he buys their land grants at cut rate prices and he ends up with something like 250,000 acres of land. Cromwell's effect in Ireland was extremely bad. I think the population in Ireland declined by over 50% during the two years that Cromwell was there. 
Can you talk about how Petty was involved in the destruction of the Irish population? Well, the survey was very important because it showed the British which land to grab. And the, the plan of the British was originally to take all the Irish and to move them to the uh, province of Connaught. Uh, Petty doesn't like that because he doesn't have land there and that would remove the workers he wants. So he comes up with other programs to, because he's also interested in alchemy, to transmute the Irish. And he comes up with plans that, for example, he wants to take Irish women and move them to England and marry Englishmen and bring English women to marry Irishmen. And the idea is this way he would get rid of any religious differences and he would civilize the Irish. In this way, he would be free to make money without the difficulty that religious and ethnic differences pose. Uh, later, Charles II has died and his brother is king. He comes up with another plan and he wants to move all of the Irish out of Ireland and keep the country with 50,000 Irish people and run it like a cattle ranch for England. Very, very ruthless, thoughtless social engineering. If it had been done by a Stalin, it would have been considered horrendous. But here he was, right at the seat of power, supposedly a very advanced and civilized country, proposing all this stuff. He's concerned that they might have too much access to food, and he's concerned that they might have the ability to fend for themselves without wage labor. But he's never really successful in subduing the Irish in that way. He has trouble getting enough workers to work for him, and the work that they do isn't very successful, partially because his plans aren't very good. He does work in chemistry, in anatomy. He does work in all sorts of science. He's building ships. In a sense, what he does is he flits from one thing to another. So he ends up with, I think it's 40 chests of papers, many of which are legal documents because he keeps getting himself in trouble. And he says, it is my practice to take my dinner in my bedroom with two men. Uh, one is instructed to lay down in bed and go to sleep, and then the others to take notes. And when this person gets exhausted from doing his writing, then he's told to go to bed. The other one's awoken, and this is how Petty does his work. He has very few friends, and the friends that he does have admire him as one of the greatest people in the world. But he doesn't seem to have a social life, but he's highly regarded. There was a man named Samuel Hartley, who was one of the great intellectual sparks for the Enlightenment in England. Hartley called Petty, when he was in his early 20s, a universal genius. And he did have that capacity to work in all sorts of areas. What role did he play in the Royal Society? And what role did the Royal Society play in English society at the time? Well, the Royal Society initially was intended to be a vehicle for developing the English Navy but expands beyond that and it becomes a center of scientific activity and they're corresponding with people on the continent and they're sharing ideas, so it becomes very important. Now, Petty is considered to be very important and he's important in several respects. One, for shipbuilding, but he gets himself in trouble with shipbuilding. He makes the mistake of building a ship and when the king challenges him to race the two ships, he trounces the king. And the king is very, very competitive. And then he designs a ship that has the capacity to come very near to the coast. And this offends the Navy because that's exactly what Holland needed to be able to do destruction to England. The Dutch had already sailed up the River Thames and uh, destroyed much of the English fleet at one point. 
One of the most important things that the Royal Society is doing is something that comes from Francis Bacon, but it was an interest that Petty had when he was a young man before he ever knew anything about Francis Bacon. And that was to look at the way trades were carried on in the country. And if you think about it, this is extremely important for science because there was no such thing as a scientific laboratory. But you could see workmen who were dealing with materials and, and making, in effect, experiments. And that becomes, that's very important for helping to promote economic development. It's also considered to be important for learning about science. This displayed his interest in the efficiency of work. Absolutely. The efficiency of work is totally important to him. Everything is, everything is determined in terms of efficiency. Now, he keeps trying to gain favor with the king, who's offended by him. He does that by doing economics, and the economics he does is to compare, say, France and England, and to do an economic analysis to say England can beat France. He also does uh, economic analysis to show why his taxes should be lowered. He's looking for ways to create consumption taxes that would take reduce his land taxes. His land holdings also get him in trouble. First of all, they're held illegally. Other people don't like him. While Cromwell was in power, the Anabaptists especially hated Cromwell. Attacking Petty was a way of indirectly attacking Cromwell. And so he gets in all sorts of trouble, duels and things like that. Fortunately, he didn't have to carry out the duel because when he was challenged, because he had bad eyesight, the terms in which he accepted the challenge was to go into a darkened basement and fight with butcher's axes. talked about his wanting to move taxes from away from the land and onto labor. This has kind of striking resemblance with the neoliberal project we are a part of today. He is and he's not neoliberal. In many ways, he's talking about the state to organize society. It's so important to organize work. For example, in one of his early works, he wants to eliminate most of the clergy. He wants to make schools where everybody's learning trades, including the aristocratic children. He doesn't want many people in the universities, and he wants to send the poor people to the universities that we only have need for a few people with that kind of education. He's very clear about wanting to get rid of superfluous activities, not relying on the market. At the same time, when it suits his interest, he talks about how the market should be free to flow the way it wants. He's the first one to use the term economics. This isn't usually recognized. 
He saw Ireland as a laboratory for the English Empire, where plans could be tested with respect to expansion of the English Empire. Well, first of all, he was absolutely right that Ireland was the laboratory for the English Empire. Uh, secondly, what he did was more extreme than that because he titled his book A Political Anatomy of Ireland. And he begins by saying, just like scientists can learn uh, things by uh, working on cheap animals, taking them apart instead of doing experiments on people, so we can do that with a poor society. So in a sense, we can take Ireland apart, we can discard it, we'll learn how to do things from that. Pretty humorless, heartless way of looking at the world. Jonathan Swift was supposed to have based his modest proposal work on the political arithmetic approach used by Petty. Well, Swift actually uses the data that Petty has published and then makes his proposal that the Irish could sell their babies and they could be used for meat for the aristocrats. And he's saying, you know, England's devouring the adults. They might as well devour the children, too. The style, the actual numbers that he uses are identical to Petty's. And Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels is also somewhat based upon the research being done by the Royal Society of which Petty was a member. What Swift did was he combined the insane asylum of Bedlam with the Royal Society, and he called it the Royal Academy of Lugano. And he has these people, one man's trying to collect energy from excrement, another man's trying to develop some type, sort of technology using cucumbers, uh, and he's just making absolute fun of them. So can you describe to me the general ideas behind the mercantilist economics tradition that was about at the time? Well, the mercantilist economic tradition was one in which it was led by people who were involved in the trade. And England is trying to acquire as much money as possible. The reason they want them, need the money is they're getting involved in so many military operations that government's getting deeper and deeper into debt. So they don't want gold and silver being sent out of the country. And the mercantilists are arguing that the best thing you can do is let the merchants take gold and silver out of the country, acquire commodities, and then bring commodities back into England. And then some of these commodities will be exported to Europe, and the profits from that will bring in more gold and silver. So Petty is emphasizing something else. How is it that you can organize production to be most efficient? Now, the mercantilists were as intent as Petty in exploiting labor as fully as possible, but they paid no attention to the efficiency. Well, even John Locke said that you can start children working at three, and this would also always be uh, humanistic because by starting work very, very early, the children would become acclimated to work and they would actually enjoy it. So they want people to work as far as possible, but they also want to limit luxury for the people. And Petty is seeing how luxury can stimulate the economy. He also, at one point, has a discussion about building pyramids, which is exactly what Keynes talked about in the end of general theory, where he was talking about building up aggregate demand. And Petty is saying, well, these government displays actually can give work and make the economy work more efficiently. Also, he talks about the money multiplier like Keynes. This concept is that when a person gets paid for maybe building this pyramid, that that money then goes on to be used multiple times in many different trades and gives the economy a boost. And isn't it interesting that, that nobody gets that for three centuries after Petty? That is, so much of what he does anticipates what we learn today. 
He also estimates the quantity of money at the time, and this is when the government doesn't really have the ability to do that. He does population estimates. One technique he uses is interesting because, like everything else, it's designed to reduce his taxes. He'd be very happy in the Republican Party of the United States today. So one of the ways he wants to reduce taxes is to create a chimney tax. It's called a hearth tax at the time. And, of course, this is hitting small industry, which also uses a chimney in order to, to do blacksmithing and the like. It's very, very unpopular. Even though, as Petty recognizes, it is a progressive tax because the rich people have more chimneys in their houses. But this is a way to take pressure off land taxes. By counting the number of chimneys, it gives you a way of estimating the population of the country, and he uses that to good effect. So he had plans to put in effect the first general census in England at the time. What happened with these plans? Uh, at the time, there was fear of a general census because there was something in the Bible, and I'm not much of a biblical scholar, that God was supposedly offended when David took some kind of census. So it was feared by some of the more religious types that if you took a census, you would incur the wrath of God. There was a plague that occurred after David's census, so nobody wanted a plague to occur. So, so he, the census never got far, but of course... Petty knew who the person would be who would be most suited to do the census. And that, of course, would be William Petty, and it would give him more fame because he had something else that was even more important than lowering his taxes. He wanted to have the position of being the great advisor to the king, but he never gets there, in part because he's so offensive to people. So he was also one of the first economists to come up with a theory of value. Yes. It's a very interesting theory of value, and unlike our theory of value that we teach in economics today, it's dependent upon people's emotional state. It's your perception of utility that gives value to something that I want to sell. Where he's trying to, to get a material estimate of value, and part of that is to allow him to be able to compare the military prospects of England with its potential enemies. And the measure he uses, he says, it's a labor-based theory of value, and everything's produced by labor and land, and we can reduce land to labor because we can calculate how many years it will take for somebody to pay off the land that he or she owns. And then it will be picked up by the French physiocrats, who are the inspiration of or the source of plagiarism for Adam Smith. What was his influence on the creation of the Bank of England? It wasn't so much his influence, but he advocated a bank, and his advocacy is picked up on the uh, plaque outside of the Bank of England. A number of people were trying to promote something like this, but the Bank of England really comes from the fact that you got a king from Holland, and it was modeled a lot on the Bank of Amsterdam. His works had quite a lasting effect on the economists that came directly after him. Absolutely. What what remains of his work today? What what are his great works? Well, partly that's difficult because he wrote so many things. Now, the way he wrote is very interesting. What he would do would be he would write something, and then these friends that admired him would make copies of what he wrote, and then they take the copies would make copies of what he wrote, and then they take the copies would make copies of what he wrote. And then they take the copies, and they would either give it to someone else to copy, or better yet, they would give it to the king or people in very high office. 
Petty could advertise his own abilities. And at the same time, because he's not publishing it, he can't be punished for writing something that would make people upset. So most of his works were published after he died. His Treatise of Taxes is certainly the most influential book because it's the book in which he's trying to lay out something closest to economics. A very short book, Verbum Sapienti, Word to the Wise, was a book, very short, but it laid out a lot of the economic concepts that will later be picked up, but only hundreds of years later. His political anatomy of Ireland is very important because it gives a detailed analysis of the Irish economy, but it's also important because it shows the heavy hand of England in Ireland. Those are the books that I appreciate the most, but there are a slew of them. There are collected works of Petty, but they only collect some of what he's done. And much of what he's done has been lost because he had those 40 chests of papers and only some of them can be accounted for now. So perhaps his greatest work has never been read in modern times. So how many boxes of the stuff survived from uh, Petty of the 43 or 53 he had? We don't know. Uh, and I've never seen that because we don't know what was in these wooden chests. Uh, we do know that there's a collection at the uh, library in London. Some of it's collected there, but I'm sure it's not 43 chests. So what happens is uh, some was sold off to other people, and we don't know. Someday maybe someone will find it, and it'll be a hoot. But he does other things, too. For example, he's the first one to talk about scientific racism. So not all of it's good, but he's there before everybody else. And Cromwell sent Colonel Pride to purge the House of Commons of the Presbyterian Royalists, leaving behind only the rump parliament which appointed the High Court at Westminster Hall to indict Charles I for tyranny. Charles was sentenced to death, even though he refused to accept that the court had jurisdiction. Say goodbye to his head. laid his head on the block. January 1649. Down came the axe. And in the silence that followed, the only sound that could be heard was a solitary giggle. From So in, in your other work, The Invention of Capitalism, you talk about how the founding fathers of economics theory would say one thing in their works and their written works and privately express quite different opinions. 
what's going on is they're writing mostly for a market-oriented economy, and they're advocating this, and they're talking about how efficient it will be. And at the same time, they are supportive of measures to force people off the land. These are things that would go totally against what they're arguing about. They don't advocate this in their written works. They do in their letters. They do it in their diaries. But it's a secret. They would talk in terms of if the people in the rural countryside, the non-monetized rural countryside, were to disappear overnight, we wouldn't notice it because they were outside of the money economy. They were outside of the business world. So they were unaffected by it. And in that way, they couldn't contribute to it. They were self-sufficient. And the self-sufficiency had to be destroyed. Now, the most clever of these economists was James Stewart. Now, Stewart is one of the most brilliant economists, terrible writing style, not well organized. What made his reputation was he said that a market economy in which people were engaged in wage labor, these aren't his words, is in effect no different from slavery. In each case, people go to work, they get a little sustenance, and they create profit. This won him no gratitude from the polite society of England. But Stuart was very interested. He's looking at economic development on the ground. And also, because he's involved with the Jacobite movement, he had to leave the country and he travels all over Europe, especially in Germany, and knows how the economy works. And he said, what you have to do is to not throw the people off the land wholesale, the way William Petty says. But what you have to do is gradually push them off the land at a rate in which the market economy can absorb them. Another thing the economist would say is you have to make sure that the peasant becomes a gardener, but not a self-sufficient farmer. Because the gardener, what the gardener does, what a little bit of self-sufficiency does, is it means you reduce the wages that have to be paid. So you just have to pay something a little bit above that in order to engage people to work. And in fact, the, when you look at the development in East Asia in recent years, in places like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, when you look at their development, one of the great advantages that they had was an American socialist anti-communist named Wolf Ladijinsky pushing land reform in those countries. And the land reform meant that the people could be largely self-sufficient, not entirely self-sufficient. So you could develop their first industry on very low-wage work, and it could be seasonal, so it would coincide with the times when they wouldn't have to work on the farm. And this is where they got the first leg up on their development. By the 60s, South Korea is, with the park regime, is starting to engage in the uh, state-run development. But the subsidy of having large numbers of people being semi-self-sufficient certainly gave them an advantage that other countries didn't have. And indeed, they set up many heavy state industries that made them world leaders today. But that's a second stage based off this first stage. So you wouldn't want a steel mill that would rely on workers that would leave during the harvest, but you could have simpler industries, simpler handicraft industries that could accept that rhythm of agricultural work. The geographics of Scotland today, the highlands are in, entirely empty. Vast swathes of Scotland still remain empty today after the Lords followed such policies as the clearances. Were these influenced by such men as, as Adam Smith? Adam Smith, not so much. But the it wasn't that they were influenced. It was that what Smith was arguing for was very much in line with that. The people in the highlands weren't contributing anything to the market economy. 
by moving them off the highlands and replacing them with sheep. Now you could commercialize life there. And the people from the highlands, many of them came to the United States when they were pushed off the land. What wasn't popularly talked about was that people were being actually burnt out of their houses at times even when they were in their houses. It was a very cruel, very vicious way of mobilizing labor, but also freeing up resources for market-oriented activities. And these market-oriented activities led the surplus to essentially go to the landed gentry or the, the wealthy merchants of the day. Yes, exactly. That is, if you have sheep, you have very few workers to feed. So it means virtually all of the product is going to be available to you other than the pittance that you give a few workers who run the sheep. Now, what happened there is, of course, the religious wars in the area have disappeared. The last burst is in 1745, not long before, not long before Adam Smith is writing. Now it's safe to clear those people off the land. What was happening before was that the landed gentry were using the people not so much as laborers, but more important, they fought in the various conflicts. So they were an army that sort of fed themselves. With the Battle of Culloden, that was no longer an option, and the gentry wanted to enjoy the luxuries of life. So Smith mocked them and talked about, for a silver buckle, these people gave up everything. Today, do we see these types of behaviours amongst modern economists who put forward somewhat questionable theories? Oh, I think so. But the difference is the presentation of the theory. If we talk about something like a large dam that's going to move thousands and thousands of people off their land, it's for the good of the people. This was not part of the rhetoric of the time. It was the people had to adjust. So you'll see World Bank programs and the like, which are every bit as heartless as what you see in this early literature, but the heartlessness is covered up with a scientific type of analysis that would show that all this is for the good of the people. And also some quite effective public relations. Exactly. But you see, when these people are writing, even at Smith's day, public relations weren't that important because the public isn't reading that much. And books were very, very expensive. You could be a little bit more honest and open. Even so, these people would talk very cruelly. For example, David Ricardo, a couple decades before the Irish potato famine, was saying that because the potato was considered to be a very bad thing because it gave the Irish the capacity to be self-sufficient. Petty complains about the potato in this respect. Ricardo is saying the problem with Ireland isn't that they have too many people, it's they have too much food. That if we could remove food and force people to come into wage labor, then Ireland would be much more profitable for us. You can't talk that way in economics today. This is one of the great problems with economics today is that the violence of the system is dispersed and, and not obvious to people. Can you talk about the origins of, of utility theory and how that sought to, in some way, mask this violence of the system? There had been some people in the 1830s and 1840s that sort of hinted at utility theory, but their influence was very limited. What happened was you had a Paris Commune occur, and shortly thereafter, within a couple of years, perhaps coincidentally, the three most important early works in utility theory, from Jevons in England, from Varas down in Switzerland, and from Menger in Austria, all appeared and showed utility theory, that the economy works to maximize utility, and it was given scientific objectivity. Now, part of the reason this is important it was believed at the time, widely believed, that a major influence behind 
the Paris Commune was a German refugee named Karl Marx. So it was necessary to answer Marx. And so for this reason, what they did was they turned Marxist theory upside down. Instead of production, you looked at the utility associated with consumption. Instead of looking at classes, you look at individuals and their actions and their, their beliefs when they engage in consumption. So this, this got rid of the idea of structural basis of an economy where you have competing classes and reduced everything to the individual whereby the system itself is not oppressing certain classes of people, but it's all to do with how an individual acts on their own. But even better is this new type of economics could be conveyed in a mathematical form. That is, you couldn't reduce Marx credibly to simple equations. But you could take the transaction between two individuals and describe it in terms of an individual equation. And you could even aggregate the whole thing and describe it in terms of an individual equation because we take the sum of all these utilities in the form of prices and we add it up and we get a GDP and that's what we measure in the economy. Again, it's all transactions. It's all, in effect, consumption. It's the opposite of Marx. And it was very effective in terms of public relations because very, very few universities will even touch Marx in an economics class. And this utility-based theory is, is what is prevalent in neoclassical school of economics, which is dominant today throughout the world. But when you look at it, it doesn't make sense. Let me give you a simple example. If I'm going to invest in a capital project, this is what capital is doing. You're, you're accumulating capital so that you can invest in it and create a better economy. Neoclassical theory argues that capital is efficiently allocated in this way. Marx uses a term called mortal leap. Actually, what you're doing is you're giving a mortal leap because you don't know the future. Neoclassical economics, because it's static, doesn't deal with the future and just makes the presumption that it's going to be efficient. And yet you'll see time and time again, business investing in capital that's not efficient at all. But they just make that assumption, and because you make the assumption and they put it in mathematical terms, it looks like it's rigorous science. You know, it's not a bad idea. What? Making a girl. Actually making a girl. This is Wyatt and Gary. Something's about to change their world. Something out of this world. She's alive! Alive! What would you little maniacs like to do first? It's all in the name of science. Weird science. If you want to be a party animal, you have to learn to live in the jungle. Not us. Not here. No way. She is turning their lives. Trust me for once, will you? What is going on? Gary, I don't know. I don't know. Their minds. <laughs> and their house. Upside down. It's seriously affecting your sex life. It's completely unnatural. Do you realize it's snowing in my room? Totally unbelievable. What's going on? And definitely weird. Hi, dudes. They went from zeros to heroes in one fantastic weekend. I'm so good. Universal Pictures presents a John Hughes film, Weird Science. It's purely sexual. So can you talk about the fall of empire with respect to the current political scenario we find the United States in? I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, people have been writing about the fall of empire for some years now in the United States. 
What we do see is deindustrialization, and the fancy that people have is that because we in the United States are so smart, uh, we'll be able to supply services and other people do the manufacturing and we'll be able to live in ease and comfort. Of course, at the same time that we say our service industry uh, will be so good, it's because of the high quality education system we have. And yet, what you'll see is people talk openly about the need to cut back on education. And the one Reagan advisor said, an educated proletariat, that's dynamite. I think the goal is online universities. So you have students now carrying on a trillion dollars worth of student debt, which means that they can't concentrate on their studies and they can't go into work that's necessarily useful work. They have to go into stuff for the money. So it's a whole recipe for disaster. Deindustrialization, excessive money going into the military, half the military spending of the world. I think it's pretty obvious to anyone who opens their eyes or someone who read British history, followed the same trajectory and Holland did before and Genoa did before, and so on and so forth. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that's in your new book? Well, all of the characters are interesting. The second most interesting character is the one that I end with, and that's Bernard Mandeville. Mandeville attacks conventional society, and then the economists take Mandeville and use him as the basis of Adam Smith's theory. He gives the crucial input for the theory of laissez-faire in that he's talking about people following their passions. Now, when he does this, he does it in a way to provoke. So, for example, one of his books is an essay on whoring by a man named Phil Porney. And he's arguing how prostitution will improve the economy. He argues on moral grounds. He said this will protect children and wives from untoward advances. And he said, again, almost like a petty would, he said, you know, just like a butcher puts out some meat to attract the flies in order to preserve the good meat. He says, we can use the prostitutes as the bad flies. And then explains how the prostitution will create aggregate demand and will create more work and make the economy work more healthy. He shocks everybody when he writes this way. And all the economists attack him. And then people like Adam Smith and David Hume take his theory and put it in a more polite way and show how Markets work because people can fulfill their own desires, which will then be turned into utility theory. Mandeville is also important to me because he ha he's so psychologically astute. And I think of him as the first behavioral economist. He has seen in a shop where a woman's coming to buy some fabric and each are trying to manipulate the other. She thinks she's pretty and she's going to do this feminine stuff. He's flattering her and then... When she picks up a piece of cloth, he starts apologizing. He said, oh, how could I have not mentioned that? I saw that that was just for you. And I'm sorry I didn't speak up when I saw that. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And they each think that they're driving a terrific bargain, but the, the shopkeeper knows more about it than she does, and he gets exactly what he wants. The second person that I talk about is John Law, a convicted murderer. And I had great fun dealing with the murder because there are three different books written about law by three different people with three different political motives. The person who seems to have been engineering the murder is the man who's sort of like the prime minister of England, you know, Sunderland, had all sorts of homosexual intrigues in it. Law then will go to France and run the French economy. And then there's a crash. The crash turned out to be a really good thing because it wiped out the power of French finance and allowed the country to prosper fairly well. 
except France keeps getting in wars, and the wars finally create the debt which pulls the government down. The third person is Richard Canlon, who works with law. He was a war profiteer, along with the fourth character, Charles Davenant, who was probably the illegitimate grandson of Shakespeare. Cantillon does some of the most brilliant economics. Now, like Petty, he writes economics as sort of a legal brief to help his lawyer defend him in court. Uh, he's going to be unable to defend himself because he's going to go to jail. Suddenly, he takes all of his money out of the bank. A headless body is found in his apartment, which burns down. He's never heard of again, except that somebody turns up in French Guyana with all of Cantillon's papers, a bunch of gold, guns, and gunpowder. He's never heard of again. Like Elvis, he might turn up at any moment. And then the fourth person is Canlon, who I said before is almost certainly the illegitimate grandson of Shakespeare. His father was the poet laureate of England. His interest to me is that he seems to comprehend all of the contradictions that these economists are ignoring. How do you run an economy in which you can have the benefit of empire without the excessive costs? Dependence on finance, which creates more power for finance and undermines what the people at the time thought to be the center of uh, virtue, namely the aristocracy. And he tries to put all these things together, and the best he can come up with a colony that's controlled by naval forces. And then the other character is, of course, the Dutch economy, which works so well with so few resources. And then finally, its colonial ventures will pull it down. So the story of the book is economics should follow these people in looking at the real economy, not be misled by looking at monetary measures. It should not be abstract, deductive, like the people that the Enlightenment were trying to get beyond. Economists should understand the ultimate cost of colonialism and empire and how it will destroy a society in the end. And finally, the book was a hell of a good time to write. Professor Michael Perelman, thank you very much for your interview today. At least you didn't ask me to sing. So Petty never civilized you? Not me. We wander the valley Past we're struck by the stench Of our enemy's pride Every time we wander the valley Flow together Our lives and bury our loss Over again very interesting interview. I hope his book goes well. Some listeners go and buy a copy. They should also check out his excellent and thought-provoking blog, Unsettling Economics. On this episode, you heard the theme tune Shine On You Crazy Scumbag by Clive Star, Weapon of Choice by Fatboy Slim, 
the Cromwell song by Monty Python and the trailer for the film Weird Science. You also heard the singing of, not Professor Perlman, but that of Li Wenjing, a 52-year-old music teacher in China who has a singing range of over six octaves. The song playing right now is Suicidal Scene by Ward, a listener to the show and an anti-authoritarian folk-punk protest musician. If any other listeners have some music or cover art they would like to feature on the show, please send it on. To end this week's episode, I will play a reading from the introduction to Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy, accompanied by Daft Punk's Daft Funk. Just started reading this book, and while not a proponent of liberalism myself, find this a fascinating little extract. Thank you for listening. And I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Social cohesion is a necessity, and mankind has never yet succeeded in enforcing cohesion by merely rational arguments. Every community is exposed to two opposite dangers. Ossification through too much discipline and reverence for tradition on the one hand. On the other hand, dissolution or subjection to foreign conquest through the growth of an individualism and personal independence that makes cooperation impossible. In general, important civilizations start with a rigid and superstitious system, gradually relaxed, and leading, at a certain stage, to a period of brilliant genius, while the good of the old tradition remains and the evil inherent in its dissolution has not yet developed. But as the evil unfolds, it leads to anarchy, thence, inevitably, to a new tyranny, producing a new synthesis secured by a new system of dogma. The doctrine of liberalism is an attempt to escape from this endless oscillation. The essence of liberalism is an attempt to secure a social order not based on irrational dogma and ensuring stability without involving more restraints than are necessary for the preservation of community. Whether this attempt can succeed, only the future can determine. 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 Only the future.